This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I live in the East Aurora, and um, throughout COVID, you may have heard stories about strange and wonderful things that have happened on my front porch over the last couple of years. And another story happened this week, and I just want you to know, I, I'm not making this stuff up. Some people have accused me of making these stories up. I'm not, and I'm actually going to tell you an accurate retelling of a story that happened this last Tuesday. I was sitting on my porch at 7 a.m., 7 in the morning, keep that in mind. I was drinking a cup of coffee. I had my Bible open. I was reading my Bible. I was praying. The Lord and I were having a wonderful time. This guy starts walking by. I can't see him because he's partially behind a bush, but I can see his head. And he says, hello, and I say, hello. And then he says, hey, man, I got a question for you. I said, okay. Do you have an extra pair of shoes? And I say, um, I pause, and I just want you to know, Father Matt was very decisive in this moment. I said, and I quote, no man, sorry, I can't help you. And I kind of shake my head. And he puts his head down, and he starts walking away, and I see that he really does not have shoes on. He has black socks that are covered with grass. And I put down my Bible, and I say, hey, um, wait a minute. Yeah? What's your name? I'll say his name was John. What size do you wear? 10. Can you fit an 11? Yeah, I think so. Wait a minute. I go inside, and I bring back two pairs of shoes. I bring back a really clean, sparkly, really nice-looking, really sharp-looking, gray, cheapo shoes, and a really dirty but really nice and expensive pair of Timbaland chucker boots. And I'm thinking, take the nice pair. He says, I'll take those boots. Oh, okay, sure, have the boots. Hey, by the way, tell me, what's going on with you? How did you come to this place in front of my house without shoes? And he said, you know, COVID hit, my life fell apart. I started, lost my job, started drinking, started abusing my wife. I got separated from my kids. I broke a protection order. I got arrested. I went to jail. Left my church. Now I'm just really lost. I said, okay, just want you to know, I'm a pastor. Can I pray for you? He said, sure. So we pray, we talk, he moves on. I haven't seen him since. But all week long, I'm thinking, what just happened? What was that? I mean, it is the absolutely perfect introduction to this sermon on this particular Bible passage. But aside from that, what was that? Here's the thing with this text we're going to look at. Jesus is sending his church. Seven times in Acts chapter 10, you see the verb send, send or sent. People are being sent. People are sending. God is sending his church. And we learn at the very beginning of the book of Acts, we're in a series on the book of Acts. That's why I'm preaching on this passage. This was this passage that was assigned to me. We're just going to look at this, and we're going to apply it to our lives. So at the very beginning of the book of Acts, in the very first chapter, verse 8, Jesus himself says before he ascends, 
he says, and many people say this is really an outline, a summary and an outline of the book of Acts, but you will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in, that's really close, and in all Judea and Samaria, that's a little further out, with people that they're not, don't really know that well, and to all the ends of the earth, to all the nations. That's really a reiteration of what God told the Jewish people back in Genesis chapter 12. So it's not a new story, but it is a continuing story. And God is sending his church to bring good news where there is no good news, to give hope where there is no hope, to give life where there's spiritual death, to give deliverance where there's spiritual bondage, to give forgiveness where people are wrapped up in guilt and shame, to give a new life, a new start where people feel like their life is a dead end. And the church is to be witnesses of that. But here's the thing we're going to learn in chapter 10. Before the Jesus sends the church to be an agent of transformation, he transforms the church. Before he sends the church to convert others, he converts the church. And I don't believe he just does it once. I believe that we're constantly in an ongoing process of being transformed so we can be agents of transformation. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10. We're actually going to walk through the whole chapter, and it's long. It's 47 verses, but I promised Dean Steve I would do this all in 25 minutes, and I did it in the first service, so I'm going to do it again in this service. So Acts chapter 10. It's a watershed moment in the life of the church, a pivotal, pivotal transformative experience for the life of the church. After this, everything changes. The floodgates are opened in a way that they were not opened before. So what I'd like to do is just take a camera. We're going to take a camera, and I'm going to look through this text in five scenes. So just follow along with me as we take the camera. Scene one, verses one through eight. So Acts 10, one says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, or a Roman soldier, a leader of Roman soldiers, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. He's a good man. He's a religious man. He may be a convert to Judaism. We don't know. We're intrigued by Judaism. He is not a follower of Jesus. He's not a Christian. He says that himself. He needs to be saved. There is new life in Jesus, and he's standing at the door, and it's almost like he's knocking at the door, but he doesn't have the key. He doesn't know how to open the door. He doesn't know how to unlock it. He needs someone to come and give him the key. Who is this guy? Well, we know he's a military officer, and that means and he's in the, the coastal town of Caesarea, which is by the sea. And we, we probably know, we know he's a man of authority, even a man of war and violence, if necessary. He's a man of power. He has a comfortable life. He's a successful man. He has climbed the ladder of success. As we're going to see later, he is surrounded by an extended family of friends and relatives who respect him. He's got a good life. But he's also a spiritual seeker. He knows there's something on the other side of that door, and he doesn't know how to get there, and he knows it's great, but he can't get through it. So verse 4, this angel comes. Verse 4, and the angel says, your prayer, a vision of an angel, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Verse 5, and now send men to Joppa, 30 miles down the coast, 
to the small town and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. Take your men and go 30 miles down the coast and find this Jewish fisherman who's living who knows where and have him come up because you need him. Now, if you're Cornelius, if I'm Cornelius, I'm thinking, really? Why can't you just tell me? You're like an angel. You're the Lord. I mean, you're, you, why can't you just tell me? Just, you got my attention. Just give me the good news right now. Why involve Peter? Because Peter's the church. And as we say around here all the time, every Sunday, it's Jesus and his church. And they're always together. Jesus and his church. But Peter? Peter's flawed. Peter failed his Lord. Peter is, Peter is, but he's been restored. And like, but he's the church. I work through my church. So go get Peter, because you need him. So Cornelius snaps his fingers. Verse 7, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, three guys, from among those attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So scene one, the camera ends as those three guys start heading down the coast along the sea to Joppa. Scene two, verses 9 through 23. The camera cuts to Joppa, zooms in on a house, a particular house, and it scales up to the roof of that house, and on the roof of that house, there's Peter. It's noon. The sun is beating down upon his head. It's hot. He's hungry. He's on the housetop at the sixth hour to pray, it says in verse 9. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. And then he had, he fell into like a trance, a vision. And let me read you what he saw in verses 11 through 13. Peter saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I've never been unkosher, Lord. I'm a Jew. I've trusted you, Lord. I'm one of your covenant people. I don't do that kind of thing. Now, it's easy for us to brush Peter's concerns off because many of us in the church have, have gotten the message, finally, Jesus helped us get rid of all those silly, backward, legalistic Old Testament food laws, and we can all eat bacon and hot dogs, finally. Well, let me just say, as someone who used to even, like, preach that way, I'm ashamed to admit, that is really either unintentionally or intentionally ignorant of what the Bible actually says about the Jewish people, their place in God's kingdom, and their, and their role even today, and the role of those Old Testament food laws. I'm not going to give a whole sermon on that, but let, let me just say that the dietary laws built into daily life, constant reminders every time you cooked a meal, you were reminded that God is holy, that he is set apart, that he loves us, that he delivered us from slavery. We were in slavery for 400 years, and he delivered us. And we are his covenant people, and we have a 
special mission to bring the light of this living, liberating God to all the nations of the earth. So you can understand why verse 17, it says that Peter was inwardly perplexed. Like, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? And let me just say, the problem is not the food laws. We have Jewish friends in our church who are followers of Messiah Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus. They still keep Old Testament, the biblical Old Testament food laws because they're God's chosen people. You say, why don't, why don't I do that? Because I'm not a Jew. They're God's special people. So the problem wasn't the food laws. The, the problem was the, this attitude that can creep into every single one of us. It's an attitude of a kind of a spiritual elitism that I have an inside track because I'm special, because I have this special mission, because I have this special covenant, and, and it can happen to Christians, and it can happen to any people group, any religious group, any nation, any race. It can happen to any one of us. It can even happen to families. It's just like, I, because there's something special, I'm special, you're common. I have this unique relationship with God, you don't. I have the inside track, you don't. That was the problem. And that's what God is, the Lord Jesus is trying to get into Peter's head. I'm trying to open your heart, Peter. Your heart has just become too constricted. I want to open your heart to this big, huge world out there, this big, huge, multi-ethnic, every tribe and nation and language and tongue, over 7,000 languages, over some 12,000 different people groups on the planet today. I want to open your heart to all of that. And remember, Peter, he doesn't just get this message once. He gets it twice. He gets it three times. Who did we know that from? From Peter. Peter told us that. He said, yeah, I was kind of dense. God had to give me the message three times. Scene two ends as the camera. There's actually ten guys that start heading up the coast. We learn later that Peter brings six of his Christian brothers, and the three guys from the Cornelius, they start heading, walking up the coast back to Caesarea. Scene three verse, starts in verse 24. Verse 24, And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So here's the camera. Now it's in the living room of Cornelius. Probably this ornate living room with all kinds of fancy furniture. And it's bursting with relatives and friends. There's his wife. There's his children. There's grandma. There's Uncle Ted. There's, there's uh, fellow centurion colleague Bob. And they're all there. They're like, who is this guest speaker? I hear he's a Jewish fisherman. Hmm. A little worried about Cornelius. Verse 28a. Peter says, first part of 28, you yourselves, he's tell, talking to Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone or of another nation. Jews and Gentiles in this day did not get along. There's a lot of decades, centuries of suspicion, hostility, prejudice, hard feelings. You know this doesn't happen. Cornelius says, yeah, but I want you to speak to my people so you have the floor. In verse 34, Peter starts his sermon. It's really a short sermon. So the, the camera pans over to Peter. Now he's getting ready to speak in front of this group. Remember, he's a fisherman. He just came from the sea. 
smells like dead fish. He's in this living room with all the wealthy, elite, powerful people. Clears his throat. And he starts with something very modest, a personal testimony. He says, truly, in verse 34, truly understand that God shows no partiality. As if to say, there was something I didn't understand, but now I understand it. I didn't get it, but now I'm getting it. I'm a slow learner, but I'm learning. There's hope for me. And what is it? That one statement, I just want to say that one statement, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, that was always true in the law, the Jewish, the Old Testament law. Uh, Just a, a huge revolutionary advancement. Chapter 19, verse 15 of Leviticus says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You should not show partiality. Peter takes that, and he expands that, and he applies it in a way that I think is truly revolutionary, truly radical. No racial group or nation or ethnic group of people, no rich, no poor, has the inside track when it comes to receiving the light and the truth and the good news of the glorious gospel of Jesus. So here's this Jewish fisherman, this poor man, I mean, economically not wealthy. He's standing before the wealthy and the powerful in this opulent living room, and he's telling them, you don't have the inside track, and I don't have the inside track either. We like to assume that this is common sense, but it's not. It's not the way the world operated then. It's not the way it operates today. This is a revolutionary, radical statement that's a game changer, as we would say. This is a philosopher, Luke Ferry, an atheist, who wrote an insightful little book called A Brief History of Thought. And he says this, Christianity was to introduce, remember, he's not a Christian. Christianity was to introduce the notion that men and women are equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. It's revolutionary. It pulls the rug under any kind of racial, national, ethnic, tribal, superiority. One statement. See, as a church, we're always, we're often, that's why we need to be transformed, because we're always keeping up with this. We're trying to get on the same page with this. Verse 35, he launches into his sermon, which I would love, it would be a sermon unto itself, but I just want to say a couple things about it. It's really short, it's really simple, it's not really complicated theology, but at the heart of it is simply this. It is good news. Something has happened. God has done something. And you can enter into it. You can receive it. That's the, that's the gist of this. In the, in the, the life, does, the resurrection, the good works of this very Jewish Jesus, good news has come to the world that wasn't there before. And he can save, restore, bent and broken and sinful people. 
Cornelius has felt this. Cornelius is being drawn by this. We're going to see in just a minute. He's going to open his heart wide open. Scene 4, verses 44 to 47, or 48. The best thing about this sermon is that before it ends, the Holy Spirit interrupts with a very important announcement. The Holy Spirit says, thank you, Peter. I'm going to take over now. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, he's still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Jews and Gentiles in the same living room. The Holy Spirit is falling on them, and miraculous stuff starts happening. Verse 45, and the believers from among the the circumcised, those who were Jewish, had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. Wow. It's like Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? And remember, this was always the plan. But now they're watching it in this living room. The gates, the floodgates are opening. And the water of life is going to irrigate the whole world. The story ends with this very, uh, look at verse 48, the very last sentence. Then they asked him, Peter, and all his friends to stay, to remain for some days. Do you, do you know how revolutionary that is? I mean, I've read that before and never really thought about it. That is just, that is so revolutionary. Here's Jew and Gentile. They're sitting in the same room. Many days hanging out together, doing life together. Someone has said in a quiet corner of the Roman Empire, in the home of a centurion, a rip in the fabric of space and time occurs, and the Holy Spirit is poured in. And there's new birth, and there's an outpouring of the Spirit, and there's a new unity that never existed before. You see, Peter, the humble fisherman, he was an agent of all of this. He was part of this. The Lord used him. But first, the Lord had to get a hold of him and transform him and break his heart open. Scene five. Here's the camera. It's zooming in. It's way out there. But then it's zooming in. It's zooming in on another city, another neighborhood, another house. And you're a little disoriented, but you realize, wait a minute, that's my city. That's my neighborhood. That's my house. Wait a minute, that's me. That's showing me in my life with my friends. The camera's turned on me. That's the way Bible stories are. That's why they're written. They're not just written for 2,000 years ago. They're written to bring us into this strange world of the Bible. Bring us into it. Bring us into it. And as I was reading this text, I couldn't help say, you know, in my encounter with John, with the guy without the shoes, I'm thinking, this is about your life, Matt. The Lord is saying, I want to prepare you. Who is it? Peter was the answer to Cornelius' prayer. He didn't even really know what he was looking for. But Peter was the answer. And I started thinking and praying, is there someone that is the answer? I'm going to be the answer to their prayers. 
Is there someone, Lord? Here's what I think the Lord is asking us. It's just to say simply, Lord, in my life, where I am, in my circumstances, I want my heart to be open. I confess any shrunkenness, any bitterness, any hatred, any resentment. I want to open my heart to you and to the world. And I want to be ready and expectant for who you're going to send into my life. I don't want to be completely caught off guard, like Father Matt on his porch, who made a good recovery, but was completely unprepared that the Lord might bring somebody into my life. May the Lord open your heart. May he transform us. May he transform you so that you can be an agent of transformation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.